Today, I wanted to, uh, well, I just felt like the Lord, not me, the Lord uh, really put on my heart to share from Isaiah chapter 17 and a little bit from chapter 19 as well. Um, You may be aware that if you were living in Egypt and Syria right now, it's not a good place to be. Everyone aware of that? In Syria, over 100,000 have died in this conflict. Over 100,000 people have died. Now, I know that very few Americans have shed even a single remote tear about that. Truth be told, that's true, right? Most people in this country, we have 317 million people, most people have not prayed about nor care about because there's bigger fish to fry in their world, like what's on TV, my job, all this other stuff. In Egypt, 65-plus and counting churches have been burned to the ground. Many Christians have been killed already, persecuted. And again, although many people in America couldn't care less, God cares. Amen? And you know what? He cares more than all the other stuff that other people don't care about. Uh, you know, more than... They do care about, I should say. And so we find ourselves here in the year 2013, and we know that every single minute we're closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Every single second we are closer to his return. Amen? Amen. You may not think about it, but Jesus is constantly thinking about it. Him and the Father and the Spirit talking about when they're going to bring it all to fulfillment, and the Father will give the now. But until that time, you and I are to understand the times and the seasons. And one of the things the Lord put on my heart when I left uh, my business career exactly a year ago um, to focus full-time as a pastor is that, uh, and I didn't accomplish it this year, but it is something I'd like to work towards, is about once a quarter, remind us, what the Bible says prophetically. Because we forget. We forget. Now, the things that are happening right now in Syria and Egypt should serve as a wake-up call. They should remind us, does this mean that everything is going to unravel and World War III will begin? Possibly, probably not. Because typically what happens is these things, no matter how catastrophic and sad and the calamity they are, they tend to simmer back down, and everybody's, oh, false alarm. Everything will be back to normal. And in a sense, that's true, but they don't realize that the end has been pushed even that much closer, right? It's late in the fourth quarter. Two-minute warning. Where are we? Only the Lord knows. It's late in the day. Where are we? Only the Lord knows. And so what can we understand about what's taking place right now? Is it relevant? Is there things God wants us to know to cause us to be even more readied, more passionate for Jesus in the days in which we live? Yes, I believe there is. In the 17th chapter of Isaiah, we'll start with verse 1. I can't read all, well, maybe I will, but there are only 14 verses. Starting with verse 1, the burden, Isaiah 17, the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city. This has never happened. It's the world's oldest city. Everyone understands that, right? It's currently the world's oldest city. Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Ar are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim. That was the northern kingdom of Israel. The kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria... They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. And that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane, the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the head with his arm. It shall be as uh, he who gathers heads of grain and the valley of Rephaim. Yet the gleaning grapes will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bow. Four or five in, the, in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. And that day a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. Won't that be wonderful? 
He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect the fingers, what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images that the incense, uh, nor the incense on the altars. In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bow and an uppermost branch, which they left because the children of Israel, and there will be desolation, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation, have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In the day, you will make your plant grow, and in the morning, you will make the seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a reap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the sea and the rushing of the nations, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like the rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at eventide, trouble. And before the morning, he is no more. And this is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Turn over to the 19th chapter. Let's read a few verses in chapter 19. We saw Syria is the opening of the 17th chapter. Let's look at the 19th. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence. The heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptian against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst, and I will destroy their council. They will consult the idols and the charmers and the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king who will rule over them, says the Lord of hosts. The waters will fail from the sea, and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of the defenses will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishermen also will mourn, and those will, they will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric, of course you know about the Egyptian cotton, and its foundation will be broken and those who make wages will be troubled of soul. There's more, but we'll stop right there. Father, we ask again for you to speak in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes, I've titled uh, this study, the study of prophecy, which is not only relevant to right now, but uh, you could have studied this a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, and it still would have been relevant, but it becomes even more poignant as we get closer to the return of Christ and seeing, Lord, what is it you're saying here in, Ezekiel, uh, in, in the book of Isaiah? So this is uh, the title I've put together for today is Echoes from Isaiah. Echoes from Isaiah. Now, why do I say echoes? Well, when you speak an echo, it just continues to reverberate. And whenever God makes a prophetic proclamation, uh, it will reverberate. It will go through time. It'll go forward. Far beyond when it was spoken by Isaiah, we still can hear him speaking today, can't we? It's right here on the pages of Scripture. I've divided our study this morning into three things. Today, tomorrow, and take heed. Today, tomorrow, and take heed. Now, when we look at prophecy, I did a prophecy series, a six-week series last year, at the end of 2012, called Prophecy 101, and, and as much as we covered, we didn't even cover the 17th and 19th chapter. I might have mentioned it in passing, but we really didn't cover it, and I'm going to try and cover it in 45, 50 minutes of what we can glean this morning to hopefully uh, allow the Lord to stir us even more. Now, when you look at prophecy, we only want to do the following two things when we look at prophecy in the Scriptures. We want to proclaim what it says and ponder what it means. That makes sense? And then we want to apply what God stirs through those two things. We want to proclaim what it says, we want to ponder what it means, and we want to apply what God stirs in our hearts, but we do not predict you know, some people get way out. You'll see some prophecy teachers, they act like they uh, understand every single mystery of the Bible. Nobody does. 
Nobody understands everything. When you look at prophecy, the way I look at prophecy, uh, there's many of them I can see are quite clear, especially the ones that have already been fulfilled, like all the messianic prophecies about Jesus. We can look back now and say, wow, that's exactly what it meant. He'll be from Bethlehem, for example. He'll go down into Egypt and come back. But when we look at prophecy as it relates to the end times, uh, we can see exactly what it says, and we can have a very good understanding, but we don't have all the specific details. You ever been riding down the road and um, you know, you're, you're on an interstate and you're going to get off on an exit ramp, maybe it's a hazy day, it could even be a sunny day, and you're looking for a specific maybe restaurant, and there's one of those signs that's going to have Cracker Barrel, McDonald's, all those things. Uh, there's a point where you know that it's a sign with restaurants, but you can't make out which ones are on the sign until you get a little closer. That's the way it is with prophecy. You can make out, you know it's a sign about restaurants, you know the restaurants are on there, you just haven't gotten close enough, and so prophecy is the same way. God can give us the overall framework, but the really finite details won't become clear until they're upon us. And then you'll exact, then everyone will know. But for some people, that'll be way too late, won't it? When it's all upon them. We want to be looking at these things ahead of time. It's like the puzzle piece. You ever put a puzzle together, you get the edges, you got the four corners done, you've got a few of the things, and then you're left with about 50 pieces that look identical, like from a distance. They look identical. All right, that one's got brown, a little haze of blue. Uh, Where in the world would this go? And it takes a while to piece them all together. Then you realize they are quite different, and they actually fit together. And this is the way the Scripture, people have gotten prophecy wrong and will keep getting it wrong. But that's why I think if we take an approach of standing back and saying, what does it say? And we can ponder some things, but we're not making predictions and we're not making outlandish claims of, thus, this will happen by this date, and this is going to happen, and this is going to be the start of World War we know that certain things must take place, and we can understand what the Scriptures say about them. Now, Jesus, we just partake of the Lord's Supper. Just a few days before the Lord's Supper, Jesus sat opposite of Jerusalem, looking straight down at the East Gate. And, you know, when I went to Israel earlier this year, what an incredible feeling it is to sit exactly where Jesus is. And you're looking at that East Gate, still sealed, the very gate He is going to one day enter through at the end of the tribulation period. And he sat there just a few days before the Lord's Supper, or just a few days before the cross, I should say. Just a few days difference from the partaking of the Lord's Supper. But just days before he went to the cross, in Matthew 24, 6, he said, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. We know he also said many would come in his name and false teachers and all the different things. But wars and rumors of war is one thing he said. You'll hear a lot of it. You might hear things like North Korea wants to launch a weapon against California. Oh, that was only eight, oh, that was only eight months ago. That's faded from my mind, right? But it's not faded from North Korea, has it? It's not faded from Iran. It's not faded from uh, all the world leaders. Russia and China are still meeting in clandestine meetings and looking at every possible way to manipulate world currency and world events and all the things that most people don't think about. There's still people bent on evil, and there really will be an unleashing of violence and calamity and wars like the world's ever. Right now, it's just rumors of it. So-and-so, they might have a nuclear bomb. Maybe they don't have a nuclear bomb. Maybe they used chemical weapons. Maybe they didn't use chemical weapons. We think they did. We think they didn't. Everything Jesus said is taking place. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, it's so, so then, because we understand the times, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Now, Paul is making it clear that most people are asleep. Most people are sound asleep, but let us not be that way, Paul said. Let the church not be that way. Let the church be awake. Let the church shed a tear for someone in Syria dying. Well, I don't know anyone from Syria. Who cares? 
They're people. Little children just like your kids. Little Egyptian children. Right? You would shed a tear. You wouldn't be like everyone else and say, well, that's so sad. Daniel 12.10, Daniel said, Many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Doesn't mean that we know every detail. I understand how a car works, but I am not a mechanic. Right? We understand and we're able to convey what God is doing to a lost and dying world. Now you take a look at what's going on right now. Just this past week, on the 29th, uh, uh, a writer for Time Magazine by the name of Elizabeth Diaz, uh, she wrote an article. um, Well, really she was writing about people like me, pastors like me, and not just me, but others like me. She, said, she writes in this article about what's taking place in Syria. She goes, speaking of what we just read in the 17th chapter, the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being city and it will be a ruinous heap. She writes on the 29th of August for Time magazine. She says, that's a prophetic message from the biblical book of Isaiah, chapter 17. And now some fundamentalist Christian blogs are buzzing with the belief that the escalating violence in Syria means the ancient text may soon be fulfilled. I don't think she's complimenting us when she says the fundamentalist Christian blogs are buzzing. That's a backhanded compliment. That's a poke in the eye. That's a laugh at you silly know-nothing Christians. It's not a laughing matter. And it doesn't... There's no blog buzzing about that it's going to be fulfilled soon. It could be fulfilled soon. It will be fulfilled because it's never taken place yet. It would be like this writer saying, I'm not going to die because I haven't died yet. Right? It's still going to happen, though it hasn't happened yet. And we don't know if the current turmoil will all simmer down or if it will escalate into something far greater, which it certainly could. But the term fundamentalist Christian is, is again, meant to marginalize or kind of push to the side anyone who would actually look to the Bible, but God's not really concerned about what people label believers. He's concerned about do we understand the truth. Now, she interviewed... Uh, a professor named Walter Brueggemann, professor emeritus from Columbia Theological Seminary and an expert on the book of Isaiah. He tells time that the interpretation of Isaiah 17 as a reference to the current conflict is absurd. Good, you can always find one of these guys just about anywhere. You cannot read the Bible that way. It is an ancient poem about ancient context, he said. If we are going to contemporize it with such easy connection, then we have to learn to read the text again the United States as well, because the United States now plays the role of Babylon and all those ancient superpowers. We have to tread very gently when making such silly connections. Hmm. Silly connection. Syria is still Syria. Damascus is still Damascus. Damascus is still the oldest city and it's never become an, a, 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 an ash heap. Egypt is still Egypt. Egypt has never had in any of their history, now they've actually had internal strife and they battled over uh, kingdoms for power, especially through uh, about the 11th to the 16th dynasties, and there was all types of wars internally, but it's never been characterized by any historian as a great civil war, which is exactly what is taking place right now. Now, it's true that you cannot take every prophecy and extrapolate it to the current. You can't. But what you understand, uh, what Mr. Brueggemann uh, needs to understand about biblical prophecy, understanding that the Jewish mindset, the rabbinical writings, they've always, we've talked about the term midrash, which is that biblical prophecy, and not in all cases, but in many cases, is repetitive. Example, out of Egypt, I have called my son, we know that that's happened more than a few times, right? He called first 
comes Abraham up out of Egypt, but it didn't end there. Then comes Israel up out of Egypt. Then comes Jesus up out of Egypt. Three times out of Israel I've called my son. It was applicable to Abraham, it was applicable to the nation-state of Israel, and it was applicable to the Son of God, Jesus himself. The prophecy did not end say, well, that one's fulfilled, Abraham came up out of Egypt, done. No, it wasn't done yet. Some of them are still fulfilling. Now, if you look at the ancient history of Syria or Egypt, these things have taken place in some measure, but not the full fulfillment of it. For example, the Assyrians were very wicked violent, evil. They overran Damascus and they did sack the city, but it was not completely ruined to an ash heap. Does that make sense? And if you were living in London during World War II, much of London was devastated, but London was not left a ruinous ash heap. Never to be... London's still a city today, right? It still exists. Damascus still exists. Jerusalem's been sacked numerous times and still exist as a city. And it had been, but it would never been left a complete ash heap that Jerusalem would never be a city again, or in this case, Damascus would never be a city again. So understanding of Midrash that prophecy, it fulfills, and its final fulfillment is yet to be seen in numerous uh, prophecies in the Scripture. Now, if we look at Damascus and Egypt and Israel today, Israel right now, because Israel's in the, in the 17th chapter, uh, related to what ta- whatever takes place in Damascus has some direct impact on Israel. And if Damascus becomes a ruinous ash heap, it will have an impact on Israel. Everyone agrees with that? Israel can't remove itself from any of this stuff, can it? Yeah, it's, it's very similar to what, ta- you know, right now, this is how... This is how satanic logic works. In Egypt, Muslim Brotherhood rises to power. The military decides to take power back from the Muslim Brotherhood, so the Muslim Brotherhood decides to kill Christians. Right? 2 plus 2 equals 18. We lost power. Military is taking power from us. Where's a Christian I can kill? Where can I send a missile over to Israel? That's satanic logic. Why? Because Satan hates Christians, and Satan hates Israel. Not because Israel is a bunch of born-again believers. Many, many in Israel are atheists and agnostics today. But Satan knows that if he can stop what is supposed to take place, which is ludicrous, he can't stop it, but yet Satan always does everything he can, then he can stop what's supposed to take place in Israel, stop the coming of Messiah, then he can delay his own eminent being thrown into the lake of fire. So Israel right now finds itself in a precarious position. It's on an island. It doesn't have many allies, uh, real allies. It's got people that say they're allies, but really who's going to take Israel and stand behind them? Right now it's just maybe us and a handful of others, and we don't really even know the full commitment even from our own nation to Israel. But Israel, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, which we don't have time to go into, uh, you can read this. Israel, much of the 36 and 37 chapter has already been fulfilled, and it's amazing because the dead bones have come back to life. And, you know, when I was in Israel, seeing how green everything was, I mean, it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago, much of that was just desert and swamp. Everything God said would take place is taking place. The final fulfillment, the full blessing of Israel, the millennium reign of Christ, has yet to be fulfilled. And the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year tribulation of their intense, enduring, one last incredible chastening by the Lord has yet to take place. But the land coming back to life, as Ezekiel 36 and 37 tells us, has been partially but significantly fulfilled, and no one can dispute that either. Even Benjamin Netanyahu read from Ezekiel, I believe he read from Ezekiel 37, standing in front of one of the prison, Nazi prison camps just a couple of years ago, saying, this is fulfilled in our lifetime. Amazing times that we live. Now, Damascus today 
Damascus finds itself in a brutal internal strife. You've got Assad, uh, their leader, fighting against the people, and he has the military, of course. But it's imminent destruction, and the fallout from that destruction, and the impact that destruction will take place. And it very well could take place in our lifetime. It could take place tomorrow. It could take place 10 years from now, 15 years from now, whenever Damascus will eventually be fully destroyed, and whether the current uh, uh, conflict plays a role, we don't know. Now, I don't know what you know about uh, Syria's leader. Say, well, this is a Bible study. Well, it's important you understand. If you want to understand the times, how many know much about Bashar al-Assad? He was, um, he was a guy that used to, he a uh, very brilliant guy. He was, he was trained as a medical doctor. Uh, from a very affluent family there in Syria. He's from a very small minority even in Syria, very small minority. And he, he's come all the way to the top. He's gained full control as a ruthless leader. He wasn't ruthless in the beginning. He actually didn't show all his true colors as he kind of moved up the ranks. Very well educated. He speaks fluent French. How many do that? Bright guy. He's been given by the enemy, quite a bit of power. A lot of leaders in world history have. Uh, He is an Alawite, which is a breakaway Shiite sect, which barely 6% of all Syria's population is an Alawite. The majority are Sunnis. In fact, the majority of most Muslims are Sunni Muslims. The majority of Muslims are Sunni. And then there's a small minority also in Syria of of Kurds, uh, Shiites, and Christians are the other small minorities. But he is an Alawite, Less than 6% of the population. Uh, He has some good friends. Vladimir Putin's a good friend of his, right? Russia is a good friend of his. Uh, He's pretty good. He's going good relations with China. Another champion of human rights, right? (laughs) Got a, a good relationship with Russia specifically. He's given Russia ports right in his country. Russia has many scientists and others that have been part of building up the Syrian army helping to arm them. Um, and Russia and China both align themselves quite a bit, not exclusively, but quite a bit, particularly Russia, with the Shiite minority. Remember that Alawite is a minority of a breakaway sect from the Shiites inside of Syria, but the Shiites are a minority of Muslims across the Muslim world and the Middle East. Sunnis are the vast majority of Muslim. Shiites are a much smaller group within the Muslim community. And Russia is well aligned with Iran and Syria, and Iran and Syria are led at the top by Shiites, right? Ahmadinejad, who's no longer in charge, I forgot the new guy that took his place, but the top of Iran is Shiite control, and the top of Syria, Syria is Shiite control, even though the majority of Syrians are not Shiites. The majority of them are Sunnis. Or in Iran, the majority actually are Shiites. So Russia is aligned with two Shiite nations, both Muslim, but not the majority. Like Saudi Arabia, where Mecca is, that is Sunni country, as is the majority of the Middle East is Sunni. Now, why, I'll get to why this is important. Both nations, Russia and China, let me speak, take her back to Russia and China for a second. Russia and China are both working very hard to have an increased influence all throughout the continent of Africa, where Islam has grown tremendously. And, and of course, Russia had a great history when they were in the Soviet Union. They had a lot of power within Africa, especially going back into the 60s, 50s, 60s, and also throughout the Middle East and Southeast Asia. So the Cold War is still going on, folks, in a certain sense. China and Russia, someone forgot to tell them that it's over because they're working very hard to have tentacle control throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa, Southeast Asia. Very, very uh, focused, both Russia and China, on improving their uh, ability to control and influence the other governments. Now, what about the United States? Well, the United States finds itself currently, when it relates to Syria, we are basically on our own, as you know. France says they'll hang with us. England took a parliamentary vote, said, you know, if there's a need for a military strike, 
you know, we can't help you. And, and that, I'm not even here to say that we should do that one way or the other. That's not my, I'm just telling you where we're at. Pray for our president, by the way. You know, I, our president, you, you, you must pray for him. You need to pray for him. God has allowed him to be in the position he's in. Now, our president does not follow God. You say, what, do you really mean that? Yes, I, I do mean that. Yes, he invokes God's name. He quotes scripture, but he is completely against the scriptures as it relates to marriage, completely against the scriptures as it relates to uh, abortion and other things as well. But those two things alone, uh, he defies and completely ignores scripture. Now, he's not alone. By the way, Republicans and Democrats are both sinners. Everyone understands that, right? Sinners sin. Does everyone know that? Sinners sin. I don't care about who's Republican. Matter of fact, we haven't, I can't think of many godly presidents in America's history. And I believe America stopped really following God, well, a long time ago. And we're not following him now. We're like the nation, we're like Samson getting up without any hair thinking, all right, I'm going to go smoke whoever I need to smoke. That's America. We have no idea our hair's been cut off. We look in the mirror, we still see biceps, we still see everything. As far as we're concerned, we can take on anybody in any place, and we can help out anybody. Israel, got your back, if we need it, we do this, we'll take... And God says, really? You ignore me, you murder millions of babies, you ignore what I say about marriage, you you have no care or concern for divorce and everything else, and as leaders, you're all about your own egos and pride and you know, spending money that you don't even have, all these kind of things, and yet I still love and pray for our president. How about you? We should. And he's, I mean, anybody. I, I love and pray. I used to work in the Fortune 500 world. I had a CEO who was not a born-again believer, folks. Our whole leadership was, and I loved and prayed for them too because God allows people to be in leadership positions. But pray for our president. Here's, what, here's a great opportunity. Now would be an awesome time for our president to really open his Bible and say, wow, I didn't know Isaiah 17 and 19 said this. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. Give me wisdom. Because God will give wisdom if we come with a humble heart and a repentant heart. Amen? Now, What's taking place, uh, even this week, the president said that uh, serious chemical attack is a challenge to the whole world and threatens, and he's right. He's right. It is a challenge to the whole world. More than people think it's a challenge to the whole world. This week alone, Supreme Guide Ayatollah al-Khamenei said, this is, he's from Iran. Remember, he's Shiite, not Sunni. He warned that the U.S. attack, any U.S. attack, he said any U.S. attack on Syria would spark a disaster in the Middle Eastern powder keg. This comes amidst statements issued by the Iranians alleging that Damascus Damascus would strike Israel and U.S. interests in the Middle East in case of intervention. The regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who is a strategic ally of the Shiite-ruled Iran, whose greatest enemy is the Sunni-ruled Saudi Arabians. You thought they were all friends. They're not. Uh, Lighting such a fire would be like sparking a powder keg with unforeseen results and consequences. The Grand Ayatollah told Iran's new government the Americans will suffer losses as they did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Goes on, uh, Syria also says if Damascus attack, Tel Aviv will become a target for a full-scale war against Syria, and Syria will be essentially justified in an attack against Israel, a Syrian senior official told the Iranian news agency Fars, if Syria is attacked, Israel will be set on fire. And such an attack will turn and engage Syria's neighbors. Remember, anything that happens to us, we turn, we find a Christian or Israel. That's the mindset. Everything. You know, it's weird. That mindset exists even in our own country. Do you know that no matter how prosperous America has become, did you know that there's many people in America now, now more than ever, that in the last 10, 15 years of my life, I've seen people, if people have come to the mindset in America, non-believing Christians, now believe that America's problems are not due to sin, 
America's problems are due to narrow-minded people who believe the Bible. They're convinced if we would get rid of any vest of the Bible that the narrow-minded was then and just everyone would love one another. This has never happened in world history. When the Bible is removed, there's more hatred than ever. There's more war against war, neighbor against neighbor, brother against brother, right? That's what takes place. And so this is what's taking place in Israel right now, today. Now, what's going to take place tomorrow? What's taking place today is a lot of wars, internal strife, rumors of wars. But what really could take place beyond this? Um, you might think, well, if Damascus is going to be ruined, Israel could get drawn into a conflict and detonate a nuclear uh, attack on Damascus, which Israel has said, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, if Israel is attacked with either nuclear or chemical weapons, look out. Because Israel has the bomb and will use it to defend themselves. And if they have to, they said they're willing to do it. They're not going to let their people get destroyed. And, you know, we know that there's chemical weapons, not only in Syria, but other parts of the Middle East. And there's the potential, obviously Iran is enriching uranium, trying to gain nuclear power. But what takes place next? Well, oh, real quick, what a, a, one quick thing about Egypt. Um, we also want to have an eye to that too. What's going on in Egypt right now as well? Well, the 19th chapter, we, we know that uh, uh, the scriptures foretell that Egypt will turn on itself. People will, it'll actually implode internally. This is really fascinating when you realize Egypt's absence from coming prophecies, things that you have yet take place. Egypt just kind of disappears from the scene. So does Syria. Isn't that weird? The remaining prophecies, which I've got to move quick because you're going to, this is stuff that you may have never seen in the scriptures. The scriptures unfold for us missing pieces that you're not going to hear on the news, that you're not going to hear from anybody, but the scriptures tell us some amazing things. But you know, uh, Egypt, some of the things that were prophesied about Egypt have been taking place for a while now. Egypt back in 1970 completed this massive, largest dam in the world at the time called the Aswan Dam. Ever heard of it? It created a big lake called Lake Nasser, which is, uh, which is the reservoir. At that time, it produ- provided about half of Egypt's power. Today, it doesn't. It provides about 15% of Egypt's power because the population has grown and people use cell phones and computers and power that no one ever thought would ever be needed. Do you know every time you do a search, it's like boiling a pot of water, a little search on your phone? uses enough power because back on some back-end server database, it actually has to pull up energy to do a search for, how do I make meatloaf? It's like boiling a pot of water. The world's energy needs are exploding. But with that comes consequences, doesn't it? Egypt built the dam and thought it would solve all their problems. It didn't solve all their problems. Did you know that Lake Nasser, tons and tons... Thousands and thousands of pounds of silt are now stuck behind the dam that used to go down the Nile River and replenish the delta up there near Alexandria, up where it hits the Mediterranean Sea. But all of that is being withheld back. It's making the groundwater too salty. It's actually killing fish. They actually have all kinds of other problems that they don't get natural fertilizers, so they have to put man-made fertilizers on all the cotton fields, which then flows into the Nile and causes pollution. There's, you know there's always a problem with every idea we come up with as man? You ever notice that? Don't listen to anyone in Washington. They'll tell you if we do this, the following will happen. Never works. I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. That, that doesn't mean that we should get nothing done. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when people tell you there's a panacea, if we build X, there will never be a child ever left behind, and all this other stuff, not true. There will always be a negative. Until Jesus rules the earth, 
Every decision we make will have bad consequences, as well as some good, because there are some good of the Aswan Dam. It does really help them get power. It did help them not have flooding to all the areas where they could predict the floods. They can actually hold the waters back. But it also had a lot of negative effect, and still does today, on fishing, on ecology, all these different things. And we know that uh, at the same time, things like Mount Kilimanjaro actually has had a receding snow cap, you know, anytime God wants to, here's the point, he can dry up the Nile River. Or he could make it, it says foul, it can become so polluted that it no longer does what it used to do. And we see that the opportunity, or the, we see how easily this lifeline could actually be cut uh, from Egypt. And we know that um, even today, this is amazing, the coastline where the Nile Delta is, do you know it's receding at about 410 to 574 feet per year? No one calculated that when they built the dam, did they? The fisheries, the impact. Again, and they figure out every year, new smarter people figure out a way to counteract some of these things. But the worst is when God says, all right, finally, I'm going to allow Egyptian against Egyptian. And then even the smart people who would try and do good things, some of them will die in fights, some of them will be destroyed, and the, the whole country will erupt And even... You think it's chaos now, it gets worse. And we don't know who the maniacal leader that will end up taking place. I don't believe necessarily that the leader who will take over Egypt is Egyptian. I believe it could be a leader that centralizes the power of Africa. And there's a cruel leader that takes over not just Egypt, because Egypt... Uh, Egypt's going to become so insignificant, according to the, uh, the 19th chapter, it becomes a vacuum that someone else could take power. It could be a leader from the Sudan, it could be a leader from Libya, it could be a leader from somewhere else in the world, or it could be an Egyptian leader themselves. We don't know. So what takes place tomorrow? What's going forward? What's going to take place next? Well, Syria, we can go back to the 17th chapter. Syria is, uh, is not 100% destroyed. Damascus is 100% destroyed whenever this takes place. Damascus is gone. It would be like New York City being wiped off the face of the map. Not like ground zero and then you still, oh, you can still be at uh, Times Square. No. We're talking about if it was completely wiped. Damascus will cease from being a city, but there'll be a few little Syrian cities that will survive this war. So we know that it's not just... Now, I don't have time to keep going back to the 17th chapter. You'll have to read it. Uh, I have it in my head, so I'll just try and you know, frame it for you. What takes place in Syria? Damascus is destroyed. Syria survives with just a remnant of people. A few little villages make... Doesn't God always have a remnant? It's His grace, right? It's always a little bit of remnant. So Syria, that's important because the end of the 19th chapter tells us more about when Egypt and Assyria and Israel are all blessed together. Each of them will all have a little... Egypt gets a little remnant, Israel gets a little remnant, Syria gets a little remnant. Because you know God loves Egyptians and Syrians just as, just as much as he loves Israelis and Jews? He does. But Damascus will be destroyed, but there'll be a little remnant of Syria left. Now, Israel, it says that Ephraim, the uppermost branch, that there'll be only a few grapes or a few olives left on the trees. Now, this is fascinating because imagine if Israel is hit by either nuclear weapons in the north or, or chemical weapons. Imagine what it would do to fruit trees and, and any kind of agriculture. It would not be good, would it? Nuclear fallout, chemical fallout. Uh, would take, if, if that's what, we don't know, but we know that something takes place that Israel wins this battle against Syria and perhaps others involved. Israel wins the battle and becomes the glory. Israel actually, hey, we won, but it comes at great cost. Israel actually will have casualties, significant casualties. Their northern country, which is the Galilean Golan Heights area, from Galilee up to the Golan Heights, will suffer agriculturally. Now, right now, it's beautiful there agriculturally. I took a picture, you know, where you've got um, Mount Hermon in the background and orange groves in the foreground. All that 
would shrink down to, it looks like, you know, a tiny percentage of trees. A few olives on a tree is not good. You want hundreds and hundreds of olives per tree. And yet, something will take place that Israel will survive as the victor in this. This is not the end war. This is not Armageddon. This is a specific battle that Israel is engaged in and Syria is involved. Syria is destroyed as a nation. Damascus is destroyed. A remnant of Syria survives. But Israel suffers great losses in the northern area. Now, why is that important? Well, in ancient times, remember, prophecy fulfills. Ephraim, which was also known as the northern kingdom, remember, the ten tribes in the north, they actually had an alliance with Syria at one time, which God hated the alliance. And judgment continues to fold down even hundreds and hundreds of years later. But Israel and uh, uh, Ephraim, the northern part, and Syria are both rejudged again. Now, turn with me real quick to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. You're getting a crash course today, I know, but Psalm 83. I don't have time to read this entire thing, but um, look at start at the verse 5. <coughs> All right, actually, verse 4. They said, Come, let us cut them off from being a nation, <coughs> that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. They have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy <coughs> against you, the tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, the Moabites, uh, the Hagarites, the Gebal, Iman, Amalek, Philistine, with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria has also joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. Deal with them as Midian. Now, ultimately, it says that, um, verse 13, Oh, my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire burns the woods and flame sets the mountains on fire. All right, so Psalm 83 tells us about an alliance. It says the tents of Edom, Ishmaelites, Moabites, Hagarites. This alliance is 100% 100% Arab in nature. Full Arab alliance. But what's interesting is when you look at this coalition, here's who it is in modern names that you would know. Okay? Here's the nations as they, they take the same ancient names. Fast forward to 2013. Here's who you have Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Gaza, or the Palestinians, Lebanon, Northern Iraq. Northern Iraq specifically is mentioned because Assyria was northern Iraq, not southern Iraq. Why is that important? Well, this alliance that's mentioned here, did you know that every one of the nations I named you right now are Sunni? Who's not Sunni? Iran, Syria. All these nations named 83 are all Sunni today. In other words, they report to Mecca. Well, everyone, Mecca is whole, the holiest city to all uh, in Islam, but nevertheless, Sunni is Saudi Arabia, and so is Jordan, and so is Lebanon, and there's a battle in Lebanon. You might hear sometimes Hezbollah, which is Shiite, so you've got the battle internal. There's a battle for Shiite and Muslim control in some of these countries, but today, these nations are all Sunni controlled. They're Sunni nations, they're also Arab. Not everyone in the Middle East is Arab right? Some are not Arab, some are African, some are Asian. These are all Arab nations and also Sunni Muslims. And they seem, Psalm 83, we've never seen, why is this important? Did you know Psalm 83, this particular confederacy, there's no time in history where that confederacy can be found. But now it can. Now it can. Hmm, how did the Bible written thousands of, uh, hold on, hundreds of years before Islam ever came into being, know that there'd be a division within Islam. Sunnis over here, Shiites over here. Hundreds of years before Muhammad was ever born, before Islam, and then would know that Islam would actually have a faction, a big faction. It's like some smaller fractions down, factions down the line as well. How would the Bible know that? How would it know that in 2013 these nations would still be around in a different format? Maybe, just maybe, and this is just pondering. I don't predict anything. I'm just pondering here. 
maybe, just maybe, these nations might come to the idea we may, we may need to preemptively beat Iran to the punch. Do you know Iran and Syria have a great rivalry against each other? They're not real fans of each other. They did have a, they did actually just last summer, there was a big meeting of all the Muslim nations, including both Shiite and Sunni, a big get together, hold hands, kumbaya thing. And they really believe that they would all join together, they could rule the world, and they probably are right. The problem is the divisions are so strong that these Sunni nations could preemptively, why? Because Sunnis and Shiites both want control of Jerusalem. Temple Mount. Another very holy city uh, to those in Islam. So we've got these Sunni nations. Uh, notice who's missing from it. I know, just give me, just give me five, ten more minutes. We'll finish up. This is important stuff. I, I don't want you to leave here and not see these things. Who's not in the list? Hmm. Missing from the Confederation are the African Muslim nations. They're not in the list. Psalm 83. Missing from the list is Syria and Iran. They're not in the list. Turkey's not in the list, which is a great, uh, an ancient uh, Tagarma, also an ancient uh, nation, but also Muslim. They're not in the list. Who is it? It's all the Ishmaelites, the Arab nations, now all Sunni, all together. Now, Jesus said that Nation would rise against nation, but he went deeper than that. He said, ethnicity versus ethnicity. Blood will be thicker than religion. Although religion ties the bind here too. They're all Sunni nations, but they're also all Arab nations. Then you have other confederacies that show up later, like in Ezekiel 38. Russia is hanging with Iran which they've been hanging with Iran for quite some time. They're also with Turkey, which is Tagarma, a different confederacy. We actually see factions breaking off. How would the Bible foretell all of these factions? And we can see them. To me, like the map just comes alive. Psalm 83, there's that group. Ezekiel 38, there's that group, right? Now, some of you would say, if you really know your Bible prophecy, you would say, but doesn't later Sheba and Dedan, which would actually be Saudi Arabia, don't they look upon? Yes, they do, because it appears that at some point in time that uh, this confederacy... Now, we don't. Uh, one other thing about this confederacy. We don't know for certain what they do. They may never attack. That they consult together about attacking. But whether they do or not, we don't know. Maybe... The prayer of the psalmist is heard, and it's thwarted by prayer hundreds of years ago. But at any rate, that group will actually come together, and we, need, we see that the excluded from that group are the African uh, Muslim nations, and excluded from that group are also the Shiite-controlled Iran and Syria. And Egypt's missing. Egypt has always been one of the linchpin, the ring leaders of some of these things. How many of you remember, uh, those of you who were alive, the Six-Day War? Who led that contingent? Egypt did, right? Egypt was the catalyst for bringing Jordan into the mix, for bringing Syria into the mix, all of these things that are taking place. Now listen to this article, uh, one other thing about Psalm 83. Uh, this is in northern Iraq. So clashes erupted in northern Iraq when security forces raided a rally site used by Sunni demonstrators on early Tuesday, killing at least 23 people and wounding dozens in an escalation to, enra to enrage protesters who have been rallying against the government. Northern, hold on, Psalm 83 says Assyria, which is northern Iraq, northern Iraq has a lot of Sunnis that are fighting against Baghdad, which is Shiite. How did the psalmist know this? that there would be a division. Even northern Iraq is actually Sunni, and all these things are taking place. It goes on to say, it is one of several overwhelmingly Sunni communities that have been the site of anti-government protest. Now in Ezekiel 38, as I mentioned, when Russia forms its confederacy, and again, they all hate Israel. The common enemy is Israel. Russia forms its confederacy. 
Now, we don't know when Gog-Magog war, does it come after the 80, Psalm 83 coalition, which I think it is. I think the Psalm 83 coalition is formed sometime. This is just my speculation looking at the 17th chapter. Uh, Israel gets into it, somehow gets sucked into Assyria. Damascus is destroyed. Israel wins a great war. Someone's going to attack Israel, and, and not immediately, but per- perhaps over time. It's either going to be Iran and their confederacy, or it's going to be Saudi Arabia and their confederacy. Someone has to beat somebody to the punch. Someone does. At the end of the 17th chapter, it says Israel smokes again. It says evening triumph trouble, and in the morning they're gone. We don't know if that is actually the fulfillment of uh, Ezekiel 38, where God destroys the armies of Russia, Iran, Tagarma, Gomer, Ethiopia, Persia, all at one time. Or if Israel wins yet another battle intermediate to that, then comes Russia saying, all right, now we'll take our hand at it. Now, this isn't unusual. Israel has had wave after wave of attacks in their history. You would say, well, that's weird. How many times could... No, this, this is Israel's history, isn't it, folks? They'll wait a few years, maybe even a few months. It looks like in the 17th chapter that Israel will actually rebuild. It says you plant foreign seedlings. When we're in Israel, many of the things that are there today, banana trees are not native to Israel, but they're doing quite well there. A lot of the palm trees, instead of the Judean palm, which was native, they have a lot of other palm trees that are not from Israel. And all these things in Israel today, many of our foreign seedlings. Well, if they had nuclear fallout or a battle that raged in the northern part and they had to replant, guess where they'd have to get all the seeds and everything? Other countries. It looks like Israel makes another comeback, replants everything, and then endures yet another attack. It seems like every time Israel just gets back on its feet, another blow, right? This is kind of like of America, too. We actually have a microcosm in this constantly. As soon as we clean up one disaster in our own country, we get another one, don't we? 9-11, Katrina, you know... Uh, the storms that rolled over uh, New York, wildfires, you name it, one thing after another. And we finally, th- we continually think that we're going to finally sit back <sighs> and relax on the beach for the next 200 years. And Israel has the same mindset that eventually, eventually people will stop attacking us. No, they won't. Tomorrow, next year, until Jesus establishes peace. Why does Jesus have the name Prince of Peace? Because it is the only, he's the only monarch in all eternity who can wear such a name. Everybody else, constant war. He's the only one that can establish and give us peace. As I mentioned, you know, Egypt uh, and Syria, they're not mentioned in, in Psalm 83. They're not mentioned in Ezekiel 38. Why? Because they won't be part of, they probably won't be part of, I'm not going to say definitively, they probably will not be part of any coalition. They will have been destroyed, not completely as a people. They'll have a couple of, a couple of remnant left, but they'll have no world power to, to engage. They'll have no military to offer to, to the African nations or to the uh, Russian Confederacy or the Arab. Of course, the Arab wants to keep, it seems like they want to keep that Confederacy close to the vest and Sunni only anyway. But Egypt and Syria are major players, and they're not found in the 83rd chapter, and they're not found in the 38th chapter. Why? Because Egypt turns on itself and ends up under some other rulership, under a maniacal, vicious ruler, probably, anyway, anyway it could be the Antichrist. It could be speaking that far ahead. Syria not, will not play a major role. Israel will survive, but by the hand of who? God, until finally in the trip, we're not even talking about the tribulation. All this is, well, some of it could be in the tribulation. We're talking about pre-tribulation to mid-tribulation. None of this is actually the battle of Armageddon, where all the nations of the world, all these things that must take place, come to a close. Why do I say take heed? Well, we don't know what's going to take place. Israel may do a preemptive strike in the near future. These coalitions may come to fruition before your very eyes. You may, you may in a few years look back and remember this teaching and say, oh my, 
Those coalitions are formal now. They're not just, they're not just like, we're, we're seeing the formation of them. We're seeing Saudi Arabia hold, a, uh, and, and, and so, or you may not see them because they might be very secretive, right? Remember the, uh, the meeting with uh, Arab leaders that was caught uh, with a hot mic where they said, it was, it was, the guy was saying, all right, now we all know we're here and we all know we want to destroy Israel. Caught on hot mic. That was not supposed to, now, they can say that individually, but they're not supposed to say it in a group setting. But it's there. These things are taking place. At some point, Israel will probably suffer greatly, particularly in the northern area. They will be drawn into some conflict. Syria is going to be utterly devastated. Damascus. These things will all take place in our lifetime. And by the way, when these things take place, it's going to have an impact to your 401k. It's going to have an impact on the world economy. Why does that matter? Start loving Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind today. These things will have oil prices will be affected, food prices will be affected, 401ks will be affected, everything will be affected. You cannot have the kind of chaos that the Bible says is going to take place in the Middle East and it be a ho-hum thing. It won't be. When's the last time you can remember a major world city being completely destroyed off the face of the earth? When this takes place, it will have a massive effect across, and the power structures will alter. China will step forward with much of its plan. Russia will step forward. Some of it will be behind the scenes. The United States, I think the United States fades over time. Sad, isn't it? We shouldn't. Because we should be able to turn back to the Lord. But the Lord is going to give Israel decisive victories until the worst of the worst leader arises, and that's the Antichrist, when he will arise and set up a false treaty, which I believe his treaties will be directly related to the outcomes of the 83rd Psalm Coalition and Ezekiel 38, Russia and its coalition. Finally, there's a real leader that will step forward and say, hey, I know Russia didn't like you. I know Saudi and all those folks were against you. I love you. This is what the Antichrist is going to do. I love you guys. I will shelter you. I will take care of you. I will make sure that no one ever touches Judaism again. And he's going to hate them the most. Isn't that amazing? And they're going to believe him. And it's going to cost Israel dearly when two-thirds of the nation will be killed and destroyed and another genocide, another holocaust will take place in the tribulation period before Jesus comes back and rescues the final remaining remnant of Israel and the whole world. I won't be here for that, folks. I'm going to be coming back with him. How about you? All these things must take place. Joel Rosenberg said the Lord is sovereign. He wrote in his blog this week, He is holy and powerful. Ultimately, the judge of the earth will do right. Joel Rosenberg says, I'm not counting on Washington for peace and just in the Middle East. I'm counting on Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. I'll close with Pastor Saeed. You guys know that Pastor Saeed's in prison in Iran. Where is he at? Iran. Enriching nuclear weapons, leader of the Shiite world. Here he is in prison. He's uh, being tortured persecuted. Did you know he came to Christ through a dream? Jesus visited him. He came to Christ. Isn't that amazing? You know, many people in the Middle East, God has been coming to them in dreams. He got saved with a dream and he goes back there risking his life to actually reach people. For But you know one of the things Jesus told him when he, when he came to him? He said, I'm coming back soon. I actually believe him. How about you? Now, I don't know what soon means to God. I just believe him. Right? Soon means for me, I'm 44, and if I live another 44 years, which will feel as fast as this 44, I'd probably be dead well before then anyway. So soon for me, it's soon. And those of you that are older than me, you really think soon is soon. <laughs> right? You do. Kids, they don't think, and a lot of adults, they don't think soon is soon because they just put it out of their mind. They put Syria out of their mind, Egypt out of their mind, poor people, what happens when God pulls the hand of protection off the United States? 
You think we're immune to this stuff? We're not immune to it. He doesn't love Americans more than he loves Egyptians. And so Peter says, the end of all things at hand, be serious and watchful in your prayer. Pastor Saeed, has been, he wrote a letter in Decision Magazine just this week that was out praying for the American church that we would stand strong in the Lord because he knows we're not, generally speaking. And then Jesus says in Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? I know a lot of people, they, they kind of want Jesus to come back, but they've got that big vacation next year. <laughs> they kind of want Jesus to come back, but they just got promoted and they make 20000 more than they ever made before. They kind of want Jesus to come back, but they want to do that big wedding for their kids. I get those things. The only reason you should not want Jesus to come back this instant is the salvation of souls. Everything else, your promotion, your vacation, the wedding of your kids. I have three daughters. I would love to see they're married, or they can stay at our house forever. That's fine, too. <laughs> I would love to see those things. But here's the thing. What, how will that compare to being in heaven with Jesus? When the streets are made of gold. The only prayer that you and I, we have to teach ourselves this. We have to pray, Lord, the only reason I would not want you to come back this very second is the salvation of grandma or my next door neighbor or the people in Syria. I don't want any Syrians to go to hell. How about you? Or Israelis or Iranians. You know, God wants Ahmadinejad to be saved. That's the only reason you and I should not want Jesus to come back. Not because we have a great steak dinner tomorrow night, and after that, then I'm clear. <laughs> but this is the nonsense we have in our head in the American church, isn't it? We don't really want Jesus to come back next year. And then when you do want him to come back, it's because you have a migraine headache, or you're in back pain. Then you want him to come back, but as soon as you're feeling good again, eh, next week's better. Folks, teach ourselves. Let the Holy Spirit teach us to the only reason is the salvation of souls. That the whole world may hear and then the end may come. Let's stand to our feet.